There, you know, one of the published papers in my initial state uh, is a 20-year look back in uh, in the Asia region, in which one lab-acquired infection per year was documented. So um, to, it's disingenuous to say that they're rare. Um, you know, they're happening about one a year for 20 years uh, as a minimum, and there's probably underreporting, or maybe. conversation with Dr. Stephen Quay. Stephen is a scientist, an author, and an entrepreneur. He is the CEO of the Seattle-based company, uh, Atosa Therapeutics. Stephen has over 360 published contributions to medicine and has been cited over 10,000 times, placing him in the top 1% of scientists worldwide. He holds 87 US patents and has invented seven FDA-approved pharmaceuticals, which have helped over 80 million people. He's the author of the best-selling book on surviving the COVID-19 pandemic, titled Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Surviving Coronavirus. He received his MD and PhD from the University of Michigan and was a postdoctoral fellow in the chemistry department at MIT with Nobel laureate H. Gobin Karana. He was also a resident at the Harvard MGH Hospital and spent almost a decade uh, on the faculty of Stanford University's School of Medicine. He and his company, Atosa, have worked tirelessly to further research on breast cancer prevention. A TEDx talk uh, he delivered on this disease has been viewed over 220,000 times. Uh, the reason I'm going so thoroughly into his qualifications uh, is because his resume is very relevant uh, to the topic we discussed today on the podcast. Uh, in late January of this year, Stephen published a 196-page paper on the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Using a Bayesian analysis, Stephen reached the conclusion that the chances that COVID-19 has its origins in a lab accident in Wuhan is 99.8% likely. This was at odds with what the WHO had announced after its investigation into the origins of COVID. Following the publication of Stephen's paper, however, a group of 26 scientists from around the world penned an open letter calling for the WHO's investigation into COVID's origins to be taken over by a forensic team. The WHO has also since withdrawn their previous statement that the lab leak hypothesis would not be considered. I contacted Stephen following my interview with Mark Pellegrini on the same topic. Stephen agreed to come onto the podcast and discuss each of the 26 pieces of evidence that he wrote about in his paper. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Stephen, how are you going? I'm doing good, Julius. How are you? 
Very well, very well. How are things over there in Taiwan? Uh, they're good. It's uh, it's just afternoon. It's sunny. So what what what's what's not to like? Perfect, perfect. Uh, now, just for the um, listeners to give a bit of context, I interviewed uh, Mark Pellegrini of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, and I asked him some questions regarding the origins of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, in that conversation, I brought up a paper which you published. Uh, at the end of January, in which you came to the conclusion using a Bayesian analysis uh, that the probability that SARS-CoV-2 uh, originated in a laboratory is 99.8% likely. Uh, Mark was very uh, dismissive of this idea, um, as I think a lot of people um, are for reasons we'll get into. Um, and he said that he would revert to the opinion of the WHO. Uh, and after their investigation, uh, they dismissed the lab leak hypothesis themselves. Um, since then, a international body of two dozen scientists uh, have penned an open letter calling for a full and unrestricted international forensic investigation uh, to take over the WHO's, the WHO's investigation um, as there are serious concerns about the uh, validity of their findings. Um, the signatories to this letter, um, of which uh, you are one, um, are highly reputed and respected experts in their field. Um, the list is even made up of members of the WHO advisory committee, such as Jamie Metzl. Um, Tedros Adhanom, the Director General of the WHO, has also overturned the WHO's stance on the lab leak hypothesis, uh, saying that they are now open to all options. Uh, it was then that I reached out to you uh, and asked whether you'd be interested in coming onto the podcast. We agreed to go through your Bayesian analysis step by step. So, First things first, Stephen, if you would please outline your credentials. Sure, sure. Well, it's, again, it's great to be speaking to you and, uh, uh, and your listeners today. So uh, I'm a Yankee. I grew up in the middle of America in Michigan, uh, MD, PhD in chemistry from the University of Michigan, uh, and then headed up to Boston for a postdoc in chemistry with a Nobel Prize winner, the genetic code identifier, uh, Gobind Karana. Uh, that's what I was doing at night. During the day, I was over at the Mass General Hospital doing my residency. And then I taught for about a decade at Stanford in the 80s in the uh, medical school. Um, got the biotech itch. And so I, I left Stanford after about a decade. Uh, I'm now on company number seven. Uh, I've invented seven drugs that are FDA approved, so I guess that's probably what I what I do the most is identify medical needs and then invent drugs to to address those needs. Uh, probably the biggest one is the uh, contrast agent used in MRI. It's been used by about 80 million people uh, over the last uh, 30 years, I guess. So uh, this last spring, I get interested in COVID, and uh, and the rest is is, is short term history, as they say. When did you first suspect that? SARS-CoV-2 may have originated in a lab? You know, I think the first the first aha moment uh, is still one of the most telling pieces of evidence, which is, um, uh, you know, I'll admit that I didn't know what, I didn't know Wuhan uh, before a year ago. Uh, I heard that that's where this pandemic was beginning in January, epidemic at that point in time in, in January. Um, and I'm sort of a science nerd. So in the old days before computers, I would take a couple inches of science papers home on weekends and just read through them. So I now do that on the, on the internet. And so in January, I was looking, okay, here's this new coronavirus epidemic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, happened in Wuhan. Oh my gosh, China has one BLSA4 laboratory and it's in Wuhan. And then you look at what the laboratory does. And over the last 20 years, 
of all papers published anywhere in the world on coronaviruses, 60% are from the one Institute of Virology, 40% are from everywhere else in the world. So I'm thinking, okay, coronavirus in a, in a city, a big city, not a, not a rural area, uh, right next to the laboratory doing 60% of the world's research the last 20 years on this. It looks like a lab leak, which happens all the time, very common. So uh, let's hear the Chinese step up to this and figure out how we how we take care of it. But but the origins seem pretty clear from that one that one individual uh, event. I agree. It seemed to me just too much of a coincidence that where this virus originated from was within 10 miles uh, of the only lab. Well, not the only lab, but the lab to have the largest and most comprehensive list of uh, bat-derived coronaviruses. Um, so, yeah, for me too, I think that was uh, was a similar experience. Maybe if you could just also explain why it's it's so important to know where the virus originated from. Well, um, because in, in, no matter what, we can all agree, no matter who we are, that we want to prevent another one of these. Um, you know, this is the biggest sort of public health medical event since the 1918 influenza. Um, I'll have to admit in medical school, when they were talking about this post-World War One, you know, influenza, I, I get it, it killed, you know, 50 million people around the world, but it was, uh, you know, it was even, a, even when I was in medical school, it was a hundred years earlier almost. So I didn't pay much attention to it. Uh, fast forward to the last year and the world has been completely changed by this process. Now, yes, two and a half million people died and that's horrible. Over a hundred million have been diagnosed with it, probably four or five times as many have had it. But the change in society, the, the lockdowns and masking and the economic damage, perhaps 20, 25 trillion dollars uh, worth of you know, economic activity, people's businesses being destroyed, families being disrupted. Um, that's a reason enough to get to the bottom of this. But to prevent the next one, you need to understand which of the two primary methods uh, this arose from. So the, the, what's called zoonotic, it has the word zoo in it. So that's a tip off that it means coming from animals. Uh, zoonotic origin is what happened with MERS, a Middle Eastern virus in the 2015 in, in, in the Middle East coming from camels to humans or SARS-CoV-1 uh, disease in 2003, 2004 that came from a, a civet cat to humans. So that's, that's the pattern of the previous coronaviruses that came from an animal to a human or what I call a laboratory assisted zoonosis where uh, coronavirus is being studied in a laboratory, maybe in humanized mice, that is a mouse that acts like a human, uh, so you can really see what it would do in a human. Uh, and then a laboratory accident happened locally, uh, and then it spread. So if, if, it's, if it's the former case, you want to do things perhaps around changing the culture of, of wet markets where these things can arise. If it's the latter, you want to have a fulsome discussion, fulsome public discussion uh, about gain-of-function research which is something we can talk a lot about here, but it's just the basic idea of taking something that's already dangerous, adding new features to make it either more effective, more transmissible, or more lethal, or all of the above, with the noble intent of getting ahead of the process by doing that in the laboratory, but with the unfortunate consequences, if this thing ever gets out, uh, it's got, it, it doesn't have training wheels, it's good to go, and, and, and what I believe happened uh, is a pandemic like we've seen. And that's an important point to make, I think, is that the the hypothetical bad guy here isn't China or any individual scientist, but potentially gain-of-function research itself. And that's what would need to call into question were the findings of your paper uh, to be validated. 
Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. My the, the, my purpose of spending, um, you know, you only have so many hours in the day and so many hours in life. But my purpose of spending time on this is because I now believe uh, with my full mind and heart that this was a gain of function research uh, virus that escaped probably accidentally. Uh, and that we should have a full public discussion about gain of function research, because after all, it's the public's blood and treasure that gets spent in this process. And I understand virologists like their they like their cool toys, they like their cool viruses, they like their research, and and in a theoretical way, they could be contributing to preventing the next pandemic. There's no actual evidence that gain of function research has ever helped any public health function. But nonetheless, I, I, and I don't want to I don't want to prejudice by you know being the scientist that tells people what to do. I want to be the scientist that advise the layperson, the demo, the democratic process, saying, hey. These are the facts for the pros and cons. You folks decide whether your money should be spent on this process. Uh, but I want to be—I want to have that public forum discussion. Uh, before we go into the details of your paper, perhaps could you explain what a Bayesian analysis is and just how accurate it is? Well, it's a—it is a process, so its accuracy depends on the data you put into it. Uh, the process itself is rigorous and kind of bias-free if done properly. Um, but you know the, 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 the principle garbage in, garbage out applies here. So if you do a Bayesian analysis with garbage, your, your outcome will probably be gar garbage. What is it? Okay, um, Reverend Bayes uh, in, the, uh, in, in the 1700s was a Scottish Presbyterian minister, but like all the people in that century, for, for some reason, it must be in the water. Uh, he was also a mathematician and a statistician. So after he passed away, someone was going through his papers and they came up with this wonderful theorem uh, and he ended up publishing it after he had passed away. So he he got no he had no knowledge that his analysis would become the basis for lots and lots of different work. But it's a it's a pretty simple principle. Uh, it has three steps. The first step is you you define uh, two competing hypotheses about about an event, about what what happened. Here, did it come from nature? Did it come from laboratory? So those are your two hypotheses. And then you take the evidence you have before you, you do any work as what are the probabilities that it came from one or the other. And I in my, in my paper, I can get into some good details with you on this. Uh, but basically I started with a biased, to me, a highly conservative uh, position of being a 98% chance it came from nature, a 2% chance it came from, from a laboratory. And, and, did, uh, you, and then the, did you do that just to make sure that there was no question as to uh, any bias uh, in the analysis. You actually started from the assumption that it was a zoonotic origin uh, rather than a lab leak. So, 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 Julius, what I want to do is, is uh, uh, again, what scientists have to do, and what you, what you know, when I, I heard your previous, I hear lots, lots of, lots of people who are scientists, but they don't, they don't talk to the lay public like a scientist should talk. So, all scientists should talk from, from two parts. One is evidence, and the other is conclusions. So if you hear a scientist only telling you conclusions, you need to raise your hand and say, wait a minute, could you please tell me the evidence that led to your statements? So, so having said that, um, I what I wanted to do was identify with the best knowledge available what the prior probabilities were. So I found three different approaches in the scientific literature. Uh, I, I averaged them, uh, and then I took the 95% the, uh, the confidence limits at the upper limit to bias it. So the only bias was after I did the analysis. I used statistics to say, I'm going to put this as far towards nature as I could. 
And that's how I got to the 98, 2%, 2% conclusion. But but actually, one of the papers is uh, that I used was was, a, was work by Dr. Dasek, who's, who's uh, head of the WHO uh, commission. So uh, I, I, I paid homage to his work by including it in my initial state of the analysis. And those three papers that you looked at, they, they were all saying that it was a zoonotic origin to begin with. Well, well, if you know, if if um, I if you want to talk, maybe maybe we could talk kind of specifically inside the paper, if you want, is is if that made sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, maybe just before we get into that, though, um, I was yeah. just wondering. So, has uh, all the evidence points that you use and all the data points that you use in this Bayesian analysis have, have they been agreed upon by all parties? Peter Dashak, Xi Jinping, Li, um, those who subscribe to the lab leak hypothesis, is it uh, are all data points? Uh, agreed upon by all parties. So um, th- that's th- that's a uh, th- that's a very good question, um, and and I think you know maybe before I actually get into my initial state analysis, I ought to talk about a p- part of the other rules that I set up for this. But uh, I used only uh, peer-reviewed published uh, articles. So I would take something from the peer-reviewed literature, I would analyze it myself, or use a piece of that in part of an analysis. Um, so it was kind of uh, that. That was sort of the, the the mechanism, the process. Right. And has has your paper been peer reviewed as well since you've published it in late January? Well, that's a great question. So it's 193 pages, I, I guess. And although I have 360 publications cited by like 10,000 people, uh, I've never published anything this big because journals don't typically take things this big. Uh, I'm in the process of writing it uh, as a uh, as a briefer uh, document for a peer-reviewed journal. What I did to get peer feedback was that this was provided to um, uh, government agencies inside the United States over about a three-month period of time, uh, and there were large committees that vetted this as part of the overall analysis that the U.S. government did uh, in the fall of uh, 2019. And I also provided this to all members of the WHO commission and all members of what's called the Lancet uh, COVID commission. So in the paper on page uh, 13, I list you know all the people that I supplied this to. I, I did get some feedback. I agreed to, to keep people's comments uh, confidential so that we could uh, we could we could modify it. But I made some some uh, pretty much minor changes in the paper. Uh, from the uh, from the from the uh, input I got from these folks, so uh, it has not been has not been peer reviewed in the formal way that we think of peer reviewed, um, and I intend to get it to have it peer reviewed in a much <laughs> a much smaller, more compressed uh, version. How long does that process usually take uh, to to have oh, a, a, a paper peer reviewed? Yeah, that's one of the challenges. Uh, you know, they're trying to be as quickly as possible for COVID papers, but it's still about a four to four to eight month process. Right. Well, I'm. Obviously, I'm a layman, but having read it myself and sort of seeing the caliber of the scientists who seem to have been assuaged to your opinion, I'm sure it will um, be validated. To actually get into the paper, I was going to start by asking, why did you initially talk about the international committees determining if COVID-2 origin may not be impartial before you got into the analysis? Um, uh, that, that's a very good point. And, and, and I'm sorry, one more, one more kind of cool thing about Bayesian analyses is when you say uh, that we, when we talk about whether my paper will be validated or not, um, I, think that, I think there's two aspects of that. One is that will each of the evidence trains that I did, uh, will the mathematics be supported? Uh, because what what Bayes, what Bayes supplied was this cool process where you start with an initial 
set of numbers, 98.2. You drop some new numbers in. You turn a, a crank. My eighth grade daughter can handle the math on it, so it's pretty simple there. And you get a new set of numbers. So the beauty is that, for example, one of the leading virologists in the, in the entire world was on a, a Zoom call with me uh, and, the, uh, and, and members of the U.S. government. And, you know, and, and, and you know, he, he said sort of challengingly, see, well, Quay, I mean, he didn't even call me Dr. Quay, but that's OK. <laughs> he, said, he said, Quay, well, how many coronaviruses are in the world? Because if there are a million, you know, you, some of your analyses don't pan out. I said, well, I, I don't know, sir. How many are there? Do you know? And then I can drop it into my analysis. Later, I found uh, I found a document from Dr. Dasak of the WHO meeting that showed that there are actually 3,204 species of coronaviruses, rather than a million or, or you know some of and 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 turned the crank and, and it came out the same. So, the beauty is, if someone gives me a new piece of evidence that's hardcore that it came from nature. I'll drop it into this and that thing will start to go back towards nature. So it's, it's a living document where additional evidence can be dropped into it. Uh, and, and that's really, really important. So you've, it's almost like you've, it's almost putting into paper a, a mechanism uh, by which people can continuously have this debate. It's, it's something where you can just keep applying evidence and one outcome becomes by percentages more and more likely. That's, that's absolutely Right, Julius. That's, that's the, the power and the beauty of this is you can you can come back in and you can put new evidence in and and, and the numbers will begin to change back. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I think the the important thing is that I use published papers to get to the original starting point, ninety eight two, um, and then and then there are two sections in here that I thought were important. Uh, to be to be in this document because again, I uh, um, I'm, I'm sort of treating this as as a Standalone, you know, stand Steve Quay's standalone statement on January 29th of the state of the world around the origin of coronavirus. So um, there were some things that didn't impact the Bayesian analysis or were included, but I thought they were important. So uh, I guess here on page 23, I do have a discussion around the, the two committees that have been established to look at this, one by the WHO, one by the, the, uh, uh, the British journal Lancet. Uh, where you look at the members of this and you see significant conflicts of interest. And I think it's important for people to realize uh, again, can a conflict of interest be overcome? Yes. Is it is it uh, is it important to be transparent? Double yes. Um, and so I think one and or or are there people who are so conflicted that they that they probably should have recused themselves from this? Um, you know that is that's a that's a legitimate question for some of these folks here. So that was why that was there. Um, and and probably the the most conflicted is is Dr. Dasek himself. Uh, you know, who's received uh, millions of dollars from the U.S. government that he has shared in research grants with the Wuhan Institute as recently as August 2020, five months ago, six months ago, uh, he and other members of these committees were publishing papers with the Wuhan Institute about the zoonotic uh, origin of coronaviruses uh, and that sort of thing. So before he was in, in, the, in Wuhan as a, as a member of the WHO and seeing data on the ground, he was publishing papers where he believed uh, he knew how this came about. So um, if I, I have to say, I mean, everyone is personal, but I have to say, if I were in this case, I would just recuse myself from this committee because I don't think I could be impartial because of my 15 year relationship with this, this institution, financial relationships, public relationships, uh, et cetera. Well, I, th I think you put that quite diplomatically saying that uh, conflicts <laughs> of, of interest can be overcome, but surely that's just uh, unacceptable to have someone who's, 
Um, as I said to Mark Pellegrini, it's like getting the murderer to document the um, scene of the crime. I mean, you can't, surely you can't have the person who's most implicated in this, if it is a lab leak, uh, heading the Lancet and uh, heading the WHO investigation. I agree. So also why the piece of evidence on SARS-like infections among employees of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in the fall of 2019 reported by the US government? Why was that included? So that's that's another example of, uh, or not another example, that, that is a uh, my first example of a placeholder for what I think is important evidence that can be used at a later date. So, um, I, you know, I also... Um, I also tried to treat this a little bit like it's it, it, it's it's uh, being done in a court of law. So one of the one of the really good important principles in a court of law is that hearsay evidence that is uh, I heard somebody say something is never allowed. Um, if if you want to introduce that kind of evidence to a jury judge, you've got to bring that person in and they swear under oath and then they give their own testimony. So we have we have conflicting statements. One from Dr. Shi, uh, who indicates that no one at the WA, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, was infected with SARS-CoV-2 at, at any point in time. And you have the State Department statement in middle January where they said they had evidence uh, that people were infected with a influenza or SARS-like infection from the Wuhan Institute in the fall of 2019. So. Uh, unfortunately, that qualifies. That's 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 all all fours as hearsay, uh, right? The State Department didn't provide the evidence uh, to allow us to evaluate its its veracity. They just made it a, a conclusory statement. Can't do that. But I put it in there as a placeholder because, for example, you may have heard yesterday, just yesterday, one of the members of the WHO committee was, I think, on NBC News or something, and she admitted for the first time that yes, there were people at the Wuhan Institute in the fall who got sick but the Chinese people told us they didn't have SARS. Okay, well, well, it, you know, it's still hearsay, but it's actually, it confirms one of the two, you know, the State Department said two things. People got sick in the fall and people had uh, SARS. Dr. Xi had said, nobody ever got sick at any point in time. So now we got WHO confirming, well, yes, they said one of these pieces was two. They were sick in the fall, but they didn't have SARS. I mean, you know, so what happens is you unpeel the onion in these various, what I call them evidence trains. So I put it in there as a placeholder for things exactly like what happened yesterday. My next version of the Bayesian analysis will include her statements that that contradict Dr. Xi partially. Uh, you know, Dr. Xi said no infections of any kind at any time. And now she says, well, yes, infections in the fall, but not SARS. Okay, so we're just going to keep doing this game. Um, so and I'm so actually was, working with uh, some other folks to show. I was just going to say, so it was essentially the first of many inconsistencies that came from Xi Shengli and from Peter Dashak. But because it was hearsay, you decided uh, not to include it in the Bayesian analysis as one of your 26 pieces of evidence. Is that correct? That's right. I, yep. I didn't do the math around but I... I included because again, what's another thing that happens in in court? Well, you constantly in court have one one person giving fact A and one person giving fact B, and the trier of, of truth, trier of the truth, has to decide between them between the two of them. One of them, one of them, one of the ways to do that is the credibility of the witness. So you know, if you lie on two or three little things, then when you say the really important thing, you're less believable than if every single thing you say is absolutely true. So, so I do introduce things here where, I, where I'm trying to do what's called impeach, 
uh, Dr. Xi, where, where she says A at one point in time, she says B, which is a, a complete contradiction. Um, just to say, hey, look at at some point in time, we're going to have to we're going to have to uh, look at the veracity of her statements and and her prior untruthfulness is going to have to weigh on her evidence. And I've got to say, just so the listeners know as well, having read the paper, uh, it's really admirable how dispassionate and objective your analysis has been, especially given. I mean, even uh, for me, reading it was quite infuriating because you know it's all this evidence pointing to a lab leak hypothesis and, you know, it's responsible for over 2 million deaths and just for this kind of obfuscation and distortion of the evidence is, I personally think, disgraceful, but I admired your uh, ability to remain dispassionate and objective and uh, discount uh, hearsay evidence here and there. So the percentage likelihood um, didn't actually change after applying the first three initial pieces of data. Is that correct? It is. And again, we should go back to the rules that I used, um, if, if I could here. So um, I wanted, again, I wanted this to be, um, you know, to be generally applicable. And so I tried to apply some, some important rules uh, around, around how this could work. Um, and, and they involve, they involve how the, um, how the math is actually done. And there, there's kind of three or four different, different things. So one is statistically significant evidence. So some of the analyses that I have here, like um, something that we can get into in detail called posterior diversity, have p-values of probabilities of coming from nature of 84 zeros and then a number, which uh, again, in, in science, in, in, in all of science, we have arbitrarily, and I can talk about this, it's kind of a fun idea why, but, but for, for 100 years or more, we've arbitrarily said things are significant if the p-value, the statistical probability that they happen is 1 in 20, or that's mathematically 0.05. So some of my evidence is 0.84 zeros and a number. Okay, if I drop that into the Bayesian equation, uh, first of all, my calculator blows up. And the Bayesian analysis is over because no other piece of evidence will ever turn that around. So what I did was I said anything that is statistically significant, no matter how small the probability of coming from nature, one in 15,000, one in a trillion, whatever, I degraded that to one in 20. So I said, I'm going to use this piece of evidence only at the 0.05% interval. That's that's about as conservative as you get. I mean, scientists would argue with me, you know, that you you really are biasing it, you know, away from that piece of evidence. But but I you're said, biasing okay, it. But you're biasing it back in favor of the zoonotic origin. Uh, uh, and I'm also yeah. That what I think. No, I think the better way to say it is I'm biasing it to allow as many different pieces of evidence to be dropped in here as possible. Right. Because if I got this one piece of evidence that's overwhelming, I, I'm going to just sit there you know, with, you know, feeling big and proud because nothing else that anyone throws at me is ever going to change that. I'm saying, no, I'm going to de- degrade this piece of evidence significance so that more evidence can come in. That was that was the impact of that. So you're almost just forcing more and more objectivity into your, into your analysis. So the other the other sort of important qualifier I did in my analysis, because because Bayesian has you have to get to numbers. So you have to get words to numbers um, is in the situation where I didn't have statistics around uh, a particular uh, particular event. It just it favored uh, zoonosis wild more than laboratory or laboratory more than wild. What did I do in that situation? Well, I said, okay. In a court of law, when you're arguing about money, so it's not criminal, it's you know it's civil court as they call it. 
um, the winner is the preponderance of the evidence. So if one party has 12 pieces of evidence and the other party has 10 pieces of evidence, the, the person with 12 wins or 11, nine or whatever it is. So if something was not quantified, I did the, I, I made it quantified by giving it a 51, 49%. Right. Uh, the interesting point of that is you'll see towards the end, many, many pieces of evidence don't change my numbers at all because when something is favored only 51, 49, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a huge impact because the other thing I, is I did is I said, look, I'm not going to pretend this is a is as quantitative as I, you know, as I might be implying here. So I'm going to reduce this to one significant figure. So if there's, you know, if there's, you know, three numbers and they start to change at the third or fourth number, I'm, I'm just going to drop that. Uh, and, and that's why, uh, that's why a lot of this disappeared right. at the end. I okay, sorry. No, no, that's all. Um, your next piece of evidence was that the location of the first cases uh, was near the Institute, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This did bring the laboratory origin hypothesis up to 4.9%, uh, which is actually less than I thought it would. As I said before, this was the first thing which made me, admittedly as a layman, suspicious of the zoonotic explanation. Did you expect that that piece of evidence would count for more in the Bayesian analysis, or did you, again, force the objectivity by reducing uh, what that evidence was worth? Yeah, that's this is a very interesting. I, I want to find it in my. Uh, I, I'm scrolling through my paper here to get to get to the point here. Um, this is this was a very uh, this was very fun uh, part of the analysis because um, oh I want to find it here because I want to get get Take the your person. Time. Yeah, no. Um, blah, blah, blah. Here we go. So for the location issue. Um, there was already a Bayesian analysis uh, in the published literature. Uh, it was actually by, uh, and I oh God, now I want to now I'm going to I'm going to find his uh, John Seymour, John Seymour, uh, an Aussie. Oh right. <laughs> when did he publish his Bayesian analysis? Uh, uh, okay, I'm I'm uh, clicking on the hyperlink here. Um, I don't have these things in my head, but uh, January 17th, a Bayesian analysis of one aspect of the SARS uh, COVID-2 origin story where the, the first recorded outbreak occurred. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I want to take a little credit here. So I've been, in, I have been communicating with him by email uh, about my, about doing a Bayesian analysis because uh, what had happened was he had, uh, he had put some interesting tweets up about location and doing some math around it, and I said, I said, look at, uh, look at John. I'm doing this big, bold Bayesian analysis. I think, I think you really should mature yours uh, into some sort of a, of a of a paper of some kind uh, because you know you you look like you're smarter at statistics than I am, and, and I think you I think you have the best way of putting it forward. So so he did that. He published it, and and one of the really uh, cool things is there's three aspects. He ended up with a three by three. A box of probabilities. One is around the likelihood of a lab escape before you know anything. And he had three possibilities, 0.01%, 0.1%, and 1%. And then the second term was the, was the probability of the evidence, uh, assuming the hypothesis was false. So that is, it, it happened in Wuhan, but, but, it, but it was an accident there. Uh, and and, and he, that was set at 0.01 or 1%. And the final was that if it did escape from uh, from the institute, uh, that it, that it then caused a pandemic, 
Um, and, and this was this was biased towards the origin by setting this at 70 at only 71 percent. So so he ran. Uh, so in his paper, he took middle probabilities, you know, one percent and that sort of thing came out with a with a bigger change in the Bayesian analysis based on 3% or something like that. Um, I, I only have a five or 6%. And he wrote me, he said, you know, you, you wanted to be sure I understood what he was doing. I said, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this conservatively. And I said, I know, John, but if I take your, I take your very reasonable analysis, it's going to wipe out the rest of my evidence. So he was taking a, a more uh, reasonably biased approach against the, against the zoonotic origin. Is that what you're saying? In his best case scenario, he said it was a 1% chance of coming from a laboratory. Right. I took his analysis at 0.01 right. um, to, to drop his data into my into my Bayesian analysis. Right. Uh, you then applied the fact that there is no evidence of uh, zero conversion uh, in Wuhan and Shanghai, uh, and this brought the lab leak hypothesis up to 19.1%. Uh, what is seroconversion and why is its absence uh, indicative of a lab leak? This is a really important concept because it's a piece of evidence that doesn't require knowing what, what the animal host is. Um, in, a, in a traditional zoonosis, you have this virus that's growing in a, in a particular animal species and it, it spreads pretty well in the species. So, in the camels in the Middle East, 100% of them had MERS coronavirus. In the civet cats in the market, 100% of them had SARS-CoV-1. So what, what happens in nature is it, it, it jumps, it, it's always trying to jump, and it, it finally it jumps to a human. But it's, it's really adapted itself to this cat. So the human gets this virus that's directed to cats, the human gets a little bit sick, doesn't, you know, doesn't, maybe may not even know they're sick, but their immune system knows, hey, I just saw this coronavirus and I beat the heck out of it. What beat the heck out of it means is that their blood forever, uh, for, for a very long time, I should say, will have antibodies against that virus. So what does that mean? Okay, so in, in 2003 in SARS-CoV-1, in MERS in 2015, scientists could go to the refrigerator in hospitals and they could find blood that was drawn previously, before the, before the epidemic even started, right? For months and years ahead of time. Uh, because doctors save everything in the laboratory, so the blood is always there. So what they did is you do an analysis of what's called archived specimens. And you say, what was, how often was this virus circulating in the population before it really got all the things it needed, got all the mutations it needed, and finally was adapted to humans. Right. And, and, um, there's, and so there's no evidence of this prior to December 2019. So, again, just backing up. So the evidence of SARS-CoV-1 is about 1%. Right. The evidence of SARS-CoV-2, I uh, misspoke, about MERS is about uh, 2%, 3%. The WHO came into Wuhan in, in May and then published a paper that we tested 540 people from October to January, October 2019 to January for zero conversion for evidence, zero out of 540. So, so you've got you've got about 1% in the past zoonoses, zero out of 540. You ask your statistician, that's improbable. That's statistically significant. There is no evidence of zero conversion. Uh, and I have to say that we believe the Chinese have up to 100,000 specimens archived in the refrigerator. You can be 
you, you can go to the bank on the fact that if there was seroconversion in the fall of 2019, they would be presenting it because that is, that's the hallmark of a zoonosis. And you don't need to know what the intermediate host is. All you know is the humans were seeing this before we knew it was an epidemic. And they would certainly, if they had that evidence, they would show it because it would vindicate them and uh, show that the zoonotic Absolutely. origin. Yeah. Gee, that's, Absolutely. This whole, this whole paper is just bizarre as you go deeper and deeper into it. I mean, I'd really encourage the listeners to have a read to it because, I mean, it, it's sort of ostensibly quite, you know, dry, hard work. But just <laughs> as each as each fact accumulates, it just gets more gripping and astonishing. What was the next piece of evidence that you looked at? Well, the next piece of evidence uh, is, is really cool because it's the virus side of that same process. So let's think about it. So with SARS-CoV-1, we have this beautiful record of when the, the first human specimen, the first human that had SARS in retrospect before we knew it from an archive. So then you can look at the virus in that, in that human. What, what they showed was that it had 17% of the mutations it needed I should the mutations it, it ended up with at the time of the of the pan of the epidemic. So SARS-CoV-1 was an epidemic in 03 or 04. If you look back at the archive specimens, the virus was over time, it's it's just a beautiful march from a scientific point of view, collecting mutations until it got to the epidemic form. Uh, it went from 17% to 100 percent Okay. So that's SARS-CoV-1. What happened with, with SARS-CoV-2? So um, this genius group of scientists in San Francisco did this study where they took, they took the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 in the very first patient. Okay. They, they looked at, there's 200 amino acids that form the interface between the virus and the human. They changed all 20 amino acids in every one of those positions. So that's 4,000 changes. And the, what, what was the purpose? In the laboratory, they wanted to see if, if any of these changes made the virus better or if they were neutral or, or made them worse. Because remember, we know that 80, what's, what's 100 minus 17? 83% of the mutations that, that SARS-CoV-1 needed to get into human were developed between the first test of the virus and the first human. What they found was that only five out of 4,000 amino acids made it better. Uh, that's a 99.5% perfection when it hit the first human. That's not what nature does. That's not because, because as it gets better in the human, it gets worse in the civet cat. It, it right. can't have it both ways. So it's, uh, it's almost as if the virus appeared ready-made as soon as we encountered it, as though it was yes. uh, the, the amino acids in it were specifically designed for humans uh, to a, what did you say? 99.4 uh, percentage. That is correct. And, and it, here's, here's an even more interesting piece of validation of that. These guys tested 4,000 amino acid changes. Five of them made improvements. There's a strain called the UK strain that's more infective. It's one of those five. No, that's insane. Yes. So, it's it almost, insane. It's, so it's almost like these people predicted what the variants were going to be. They absolutely did. They absolutely did. They absolutely did. Um, now, there are variants outside the spike protein. They only focus on the spike protein, but, but they predicted uh, like two months before the UK strain emerged that if you wow. change amino acid 501 from an N to a Y, it binds to the, the ACE receptor better. 
And then they just stood back and watched and nature did its thing. And unfortunately it found that, uh, you know, after 80 million, after 80 million experiments, nature can do it too. Humans can do it on the first try. Nature can do it after 80 million tries. Well, that's fascinating. So is that what, what we just described? Is that the same, what you were saying about the, the equivalent of the seroconversion actually in the virus? Is that called the, the posterior diversity? Is that what it is in the paper? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So um, what, what you have, yeah. So the, the way that's, the way you think about that is with SARS-CoV-1 and with MERS, you have two sets of data. You have the, the first patient that we know about with the epidemic version, and then you have later, you have later people. When you look at the mutations in the later people, they didn't, they didn't come from that first patient. They go, they go posteriorly back in time. They meet you know, generations and generations, uh, generations ago because they got the infection not from another human, but from another animal. And the animals have been passing it around for years and years. And so there's a lot of diversity. There's no diversity in this virus. There was one patient at the PLA hospital in December that had lineage A. The virus from you know, President Trump's virus and the other 100 million viruses are all traceable, mutation, 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 back to that first patient. There's only one patient here. Uh, the probability of that is 10 with 84 zeros. This is the one that, that really blew up the analysis. Yeah, There's zero it. posterior diversity. It, yeah, I sort of brought the laboratory origin hypothesis. Uh, both Dr. Dr. Shi and the WHO, very interesting, both Dr. Shi and the WHO. Sorry, Stephen, uh, I, I think there's just a, uh, Sorry, a Julie, timing problem with the, um, no, no, not at all. I was talking over you, so my apologies. But yeah, I was just going to make the point. So the lack of posterior diversity, essentially, um, the fact that the family tree of sorts for the virus begins at the uh, PLA hospital that brought the laboratory origin to 69.2% and the zoonotic origin down to 30.8%. Just, I just thought that was important to let the listeners know. Go on though, as you were saying though, about uh, Dr. Shi. Yeah. So, uh, and, and just as a reminder, the PLA hospital is three kilometers from the one Institute of Virology. They're all online to the, they're all online to the metro system there, which I've identified as probably what I call the, con, the COVID conduit. Uh, so in, 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 uh, in a paper, uh, Dr. Shi actually said, this looks like a single infection in humans. In a draft version, when she published that paper, she, take that sen- she took that sentence out. Uh, and the WHO has also made public statements in writing about the fact that this looks like it came from only one or a very few cases. Uh, and they're now, they're now sort of backing away from that because the obvious implication is something that's very different from SARS-CoV-1 and from MERS. Uh, and they suddenly realized the truth had caught them and, you know, and they were speaking the truth but didn't want to be. How serious of a crime is that to distort the records relating to to COVID, because I know Xi Jingli, when she released the original genome sequence of of SARS-CoV-2, didn't put in the presence of furin sites, and you know, there's a whole trail of uh, cover-ups and obfuscations of the evidence. Um, how serious? How seriously is that taken by the scientific community when that happens, and what are the consequences for that? Well. Um- you know, I, you use the word crime, and I don't want to use the word crime. I'm not going to, uh, I won't get dragged into using it because it, it, it has very specific meanings mm. and very specific consequences. Um, you know, scientific thought is a pretty, you know, is, is, is a common thing. Actually, uh, Steve Quay, yours truly, um, had a book written about his work at, the, at Harvard in the 1980s called Betrayers of the Truth, in which the fellow I was working for had been uh, cheating on his research for about eight years, and, and I uncovered that and um, 
Uh, he was fired. Uh, there was congressional hearings about it. And Betrayers of the Truth was a book that was written uh, by yeah. two New York Times uh, writers, Nicholas Wade and William Brooks. Wow. So, well, so I know you won't get into it because you're so, sort of remaining objective and stuff, but is that, I mean, that just seems like such a hectic <laughs> crime to, well, I know you don't want me using the word crime, but just to distort the evidence when everyone's priority right now is to be getting to the bottom, not only of the origins, but of uh, creating vaccines. Surely that hampers that process. I just feel like it's been almost taken uh, a bit lightly what's what's been done by Peter Daszak and Xi Jinping when it when it comes to the records yeah 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 I, I agree Julius N- neither of them are MDs they're both PhDs I have an MD and a PhD but you know at the end of the day and on the you know the inside of the onion I'm a physician who's trying to help people uh, either by developing drugs or 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 in, or in this fashion and and I get it that no one wants to to be sort of responsible if this gain of function research escaped the laboratory. I, I I get that completely, but we're doing a we're doing a very big disservice to all the people of the world to to cover to cover this up and, and to end up with with continuing to do gain of function research like nothing happened. Mm. Um, I, and I'm not going to stand by and let that happen. I have a lot of respect for that. I, I made the point to Mark Pellegrini, which he denied that this sort of reminded me of the whole situation with Chernobyl and how, you know, that was sort of a watershed moment for uh, nuclear power plants. And I, I said to him, you know, is this potentially a watershed moment for uh, gain-of-function experiments? And he sort of vehemently denied it or denied that it was. Um, in the next, there's a side note of sorts in uh, your paper after the last piece of evidence where you make the following observation, uh, quote, the Wuhan Institute of Virology has publicly disclosed that by 2017, it had developed the techniques to collect novel coronaviruses, systematically modify the receptor binding domain to improve binding or alter zoonotic tropism and transmission, insert a furin site to permit human cell infection, make chimera and synthetic viruses, perform experiments on humanized mice, and optimize the ORF8 gene to increase human cell death. Close quote. Could you please expand on what you mean by this? So I, I think uh, that's sort of, it's like Jeopardy. That, that's the answer to the question. What, you know, what is the question there is? Um, if SARS-CoV-2 was created in a laboratory, what steps would have to be done? And does the Wuhan Institute of Virology have the capabilities to do each of those steps? So that long and complicated scientific sentence you said is the, are the various steps you would do to SARS-CoV-2. So, um, I mean, there's, there was a recent, uh, you know, fellow on the news that basically said, we can't, we're not smart enough to create these viruses in the laboratory. And that's, that's again, obfuscation. Uh, you cannot, we're not good enough to take a white piece of paper and write 30,000 letters uh, of the genetic code, you know, and, and, and make it a viable virus, probably. But we can take something that's 90, 96% the same as SARS-CoV-2, and we can, we can play with that other 4%. We can do all the things that I, that I list there. Of, of, of dropping in uh, uh, dropping in spike proteins to change the trophies and dropping in furin sites. Uh, the ORF8 is a very unusual gene in SARS-CoV-2. It's responsible for a lot of the damage to our immune system this virus does in addition to just causing an infection. Um, and, and, and both Dr. Dasek and Dr. Shi are, have published papers where they have manipulated ORF8 in lots of different ways to understand how it works and, to, and found ways that it became more virulent and less virulent. 
Uh, I'm not saying that any of that work is found in SARS-CoV-2. I'm saying is if I wanted to ask somebody in the world who knows the most about making Orphate more infectious or less infectious, those two people would be the ones I'd ask. So it's pretty much a statement of saying what they are actually capable of. That's correct. That's all it is. It's, mm. it's, yes. uh, what was the next piece of evidence uh, that you applied? So uh, I'm scrolling through the paper. It's 193 pages. I didn't to, even memorize I'm up, it. Um, <laughs> I'm up to the, uh, the, lack of, so, the lack of furin cleavage sites in any other Sabe covirus. Yep. So let's, let's talk about what the heck that means. So um, think of this virus as a, as a key. And think of your house as the cell, and it wants to get into the get to get, get into the cell, and you want to get into your house. You have to do two things. You put the key in, but that doesn't get you in the house, right? You have to turn the key. Here, the spike protein interacts with ACE2, so that's putting the key in the in the in the lock. The turning it is your own cell inviting it in by having enzymes that clip the spike protein, clip the spike protein, allowing it to unhinge make a hole in your cell and punch the punch the RNA in. Um, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but in the US we have this jack-in-the-box toy for little kids where you, you turn this box, it's got a, you turn the crank, music plays, and then this thing pops up and it's supposed to delight kids. It always scared every kid I ever did it with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the RNA in SARS-CoV-2 is under tension like that clown in the box. And what releases that tension is your own cell, your own furin enzymes, clipping the spike protein. So um, SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mess around. It has three different enzymes it can use. It doesn't need all three, it just needs one. And so all of the coronaviruses in nature uh, have uh, uh, cleavage sites that are downstream. If, if you think about the genetic code is upstream on the left and downstream on the right, they're downstream. So uh, there are furin sites in influenza, there are furin sites in other uh, sort of distantly related coronaviruses, but there are no furin sites in, in, in Sarbico coronaviruses, which is the subgenre in which this virus resides. So 2,000, uh, 2000 viruses in this subgenre for recombination, zero furin sites. So that's pretty unusual, right? Right. Zero out of 2,000, yes, your statistician run, run that. That's very unusual, very improbable. Uh, what you're seeing in the literature is people are, are are now combing out throughout the world to try to find something that that looks like a furin site to say, oh yeah, this, this is from nature and, and, and there it is. Uh, and not one of them passes muster. So we're still, yeah, we're still at zero for 2000. So those amino acids uh, the, the, where the furin cleavage site is, doesn't appear in any other uh, coronavirus, but it appears in this. And furin cleavage sites turbocharge the virus to make it uh, optimized for destroying human cells. Is that correct? Yes. Since 1992, in my paper, I have 11 papers, including one from Dr. Xi, where they have taken a virus that did not have a furin site, purposely put one in, and done experiments. And in all 11 cases, they either become more infective, more transmissible, or more lethal. So we've known since 1992 how to put these things into viruses. So, you know, when you see it there, I mean, you know, once you're, once you're in graduate school in virology, if you see a furin site, you can raise your hand and say, that's going to make it more infected. And, uh, and, and yet here it is, and it's never been in this class of viruses before. Do you think that's the key piece of evidence then, the, uh, the presence of furin cleavage sites in SARS-CoV-2? I think it is because it's what I call a trifecta. 
three. It has three three elements. So <clears throat> remember remember how biology works. So you've got the genetic code, uh, which because it's RNA, it's the blueprint. So uh, when when I heard your, your uh, when I heard Mark you know give his give his lecture, I, I I would I would have kind of described biology differently. So your DNA is a library. There there's the books of life, and, and they're on the shelf. But they they really they, they can be read, but they can't be xeroxed. The way to xerox them is to make a a blueprint of those things, and that's what messenger RNA is. And you take the blueprint to the factory, and you say, "Give me this protein," and the factory makes the protein you know from the blueprint. So. <clears throat> So the, so the important thing is that SARS-CoV-2 has a furin site uh, protein, but it also has a furin site genetic code. So the, the part of the trifecta is, okay, it's got a furin site and zero out of 2000, but what are the, uh, what are the codons for that, for that particular amino acid in the furin site? Now, I got the Nobel Prize, uh, I, got the, I did my postdoc with a Nobel Prize winner who, who, who broke the, the, the genetic code. It's the Rosetta Stone of life, basically. That's what he got the prize for. So the, there's six different words or codons for the amino acid arginine. There are six choices. And interestingly, beautifully, uh, every species in life kind of has a different preference for the six. Humans really like CGG. Why, we don't know, but they really like CGG. Coronaviruses really hate CGG. Out of all 64 codons that are code for any amino acid, CGG is the 63rd out of 64 most popular. It's, it's second from the bottom of the list. So you look inside SARS-CoV-2 and you say, my God, there's a CGG, CGG, and they're right next to each other. There's two of them. Um, they occur 9% of the time, you multiply that together, you know, you're, you already are statistically significant. Um, I actually went so far as to say, okay, it's a CGG-CGG pair. It's in SARS-CoV-2 in the furin site, so it's in a very special place. But let me, let me look broadly. Let me say, how many CGG-CGG pairs are there in the coronavirus world, beta coronavirus world? So I looked at 580,000 codons. Uh, you know how many I found? How many? I found zero. Jesus. Zero, zero. So, so no other coronavirus in all of history that we've ever found has a CGG next to a CGG. I thought because I thought because a single one was nine percent, the product of the two of them would be nine times nine, or you know, or or, or you know, less than one percent. It's a lot more than less than one percent. There's something else going on there. But but the bottom line is that this has never been seen before in in fifty five hundred eighty thousand sequences. So of all the coronaviruses that have ever existed, this one more than any other is optimized uh, for human transmission and human cell uh, death. Uh, Julius, let me let me before we go to the the function here. There's one more of the trifecta that's that's really important. I just learned this in the last 24 hours. So um, this this thing keeps getting unwound. So um, we've established that CGG CGG never happens in nature. Okay, we've that it happens in the laboratory. What would be the evidence? You know, why? Why would if you're if you're in the laboratory and you're making a furin site and you know that coronaviruses hate CGG, why the heck would you put it in there? What would be the reason? Um, if there are six different codons, six different words for arginine, you put two of them together, six times six is thirty-six. 
So there are 36 possible combinations. CGG, CGG is only one of 36. Is there a laboratory reason for picking that one? 24 hours ago, I, I think I identified what that is. By, and it wasn't that I identified it, it's that I understood what someone else had done. Someone else discovered this. I now have I now see that I didn't understand the significance of it, and now I do. Um, so <clears throat> when you do research in the laboratory with coronaviruses, one of the things you want to do is have a simple test to see if your spike protein has fallen apart. You know, if the furin site is supposed to cleave between that spot, um, you want to be able to see, you know, is it cleaving or not? Um, and so the way to do that in the, in the RNA is to use a particular enzyme that recognizes a particular set of DNA. So if you look at all 36 possible arginine dimers, all 36 possible in the RNA of SARS-CoV-2, CGG, CGG is the only one that gives you a single cleavage site to allow you in the laboratory to follow the progress of this virus in human cells. That's the thing that, that breaks the code for me that I hadn't realized because the, you know, I, I couldn't get around why a human would put CGG, CGG in there because it, it, coronaviruses don't like them. But if you want to do your experiment in the laboratory, it's the only one you can use. The evidence is just, I mean. And that is not in my Bayesian analysis. That no, in my no. revision, which is going mm -hmm. to come up. I'm going to revise this based on input from, from lots of people. It's just because everyone, I mean, at least in the, public dialogue, everyone just dismisses this as uh, a conspiracy theory or just, you know, I think partly because Trump subscribed to the theory early on, but it's just, there's so much evidence uh, that points to this. That's just, I, I almost feel like I've been going crazy in the last couple of weeks, just wondering, you know, why is no one uh, looking at this hypothesis and uh, giving credence to it? Uh, Julius, I, I, I put in the beginning again, before my Bayesian analysis here, um, what I thought is the important answer to that question. Um, between February 3rd and March 17th, three papers were published. They have been viewed millions of times, hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, one of them asked for a petition to sign on in support and has 30,000 plus people. And they are Dr. Xi's paper in Nature on the first description of the virus in, in, in humans. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Dasak's uh, paper in Lancet, uh, appealing to the community of scientists to ignore the conspiracy theories, and a paper by Dr. Anderson and colleagues on uh, why this why this came from nature and did not come from uh, from uh, from a laboratory. Those three papers have been so widely distributed that if you're a casual virologist just walking down the street this is your this is the basis for your understanding so you know unless you're committed to really doing this work yourself you kind of I don't mean to be impolite but you know you're not you're not probing and, and, and detailing and spending energy you know making sure people are doing science correctly and these three papers carry the day so whether that was strategic or not I have no evidence of that I know that the Lancet paper we've seen the emails surrounding that uh, that was an orchestrated paper by Dr. Dasak to, to beat down the idea of a conspiracy theory laboratory support, to, to obfuscate who was involved with the letter and to obfuscate that it was orchestrated. But we now have, through Freedom of Information, the emails that show that, that he was orchestrating that process. So I think that's the answer to why, why this has been so hard to take traction is they laid this foundation of three papers in February and March that, that set the stage for the discussion. So they've essentially just 
flooded the public dialogue and people who don't have the time to actually look into it are just reverting to that opinion. And it's just, yeah, again, just constantly more astonishing and more gripping as you uh, look into this. There was also, as you state in your paper, uh, evidence of lax operations and disregard of laboratory safety protocols uh, and regulations in China. Did you mean China generally or with the Wuhan Institute of Virology specifically? Yeah, so this this is uh, this again is 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 only um, only based on sort of available peer reviewed papers. So um, its its primary documentary evidence surrounds China in general, uh, and, and and some reports have been given. We are I think most people who are following this pretty closely know that the Washington Post broke uh, two cables uh, written by uh, embassy, U.S. embassy uh, personnel who visited uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2018 and were so concerned about uh, about lack of safety and about lack of training that they wrote cables back to Washington basically saying, hey, this is a, this is a, a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, it looks like it waited about a year and a half. So um, again, this is this is put in there. I, I don't even know if I included it or I included it only as evidence leaning toward a lab in, uh, you know, output, but um, again, I don't want, I don't want to disparage, <laughs> disparage my fellow scientists, but um, there, there seems to be, and I, you know, and I have not visited uh, these kinds of laboratories in China. So there does seem to be a lot of third-party evidence that, that perhaps uh, uh, lax findings there could have led to this, uh, led to this event. I don't say it to disparage the uh, scientists, but only to sort of point out the, that the idea that this, uh, kind of an accident can occur isn't uh, out of the ordinary or isn't extraordinary as a uh, hypothesis. Because um, there had, hadn't there previously also been SARS-CoV-1, uh, once it had been contained, there were then four lab leaks of uh, SARS-CoV-1 from scientists experimenting with that virus. Yeah, that's that's exactly correct. You broke up a little, uh, so I didn't hear all of that. But, you know, one of the published papers in my initial state uh, is a 20-year look back in uh, in the Asia region in which one lab-acquired infection per year was documented. So um, to, it, it's disingenuous to say that they're rare. Um, you know, they're happening about one a year for 20 years uh, as a minimum. And there's probably underreporting, so it may be more than that. And you point out kind of a truly ironic situation where uh, in July 2003, WHO, uh, makes a pronouncement. Uh, SARS-CoV-1 is is uh, the epidemic is over, and everyone's sigh, sigh of relief. Next four cases were all from the laboratories. Uh, you know, two in China, one in Singapore, and one in Taiwan, uh, where it escaped, uh, and it you know it killed a few people, and 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 I think about a dozen got sick. So, um, and one again, one of the scientists was was not working on on SARS-CoV-1. He was working on West Nile virus, which itself is a nasty virus. So he should have been extra extra careful. But apparently, SARS was down the hall. He got he got a clinical case of SARS without ever working on it. And then didn't his mother end up catching it and then passing away? Uh, he, that was that was not the, the patient that that happened in, but that was a, another lab in Beijing. And yes, right. uh, this this young woman traveled back to her to her mother uh, in uh, uh, outside of Beijing. I, I think hundreds of kilometers outside of Beijing. Her mother took care of her. She recovered, but her mother, who was a physician, uh, passed away. She was in her forties, and I think she infected another six or eight people. So um, these lab acqu- lab acquired infections going into the community are real. And, um, and, SARS-CoV-1 and not at- just never had the uh, the potential of SARS-CoV-2 for for human to human transfer. Mm, and they're just not they're not out. It's not out of the ordinary for these things 
to happen. Uh, you then insert the evidence that uh, mammalian biodiversity between Yunnan and Hubei is significantly different, uh, limiting a potential common intermediate host. Uh, could you unpack that a bit uh, for the listeners? Yeah. So again, uh, a, a zoonosis um, involves uh, either, f- first of all, everyone agrees, I don't think there's any dispute, coronaviruses reservoir host defined as a host that it can run around in doesn't kill doesn't infect but it but it provides the the petri dish in nature for all of these things to happen is the bat so so SARS-CoV-2 if it's from nature is either bat to human or bat to another animal to human um so so this paper is simply again looking at work by Dr. Dasak uh, Dr. Shi again I, I I like to use their own research <laughs> Um, if if it if it's if it's helpful in in, in this process, but um, basically showing that the biodiversity in general between Hubei and um, and, uh, and and Wainan Wainan uh, in southern southern province um, is very different. Is very different. Uh, being an American, I had to I sort of Americanize this, and, and I, my analogy for for the U.S. folks is. Uh, it's like the bats are in the Everglades National Park in Florida, and Wuhan is New York City. So, so that's the distance. That's the same distance that we're talking about here. So, that piece of evidence is simply that there is not significant overlap between the the intermediate hosts that could exist in Wuhan and the and the other intermediate animals in Hubei. Because we all we all agree. There's again, there's no agreement. WHO, Dr. Shi, Dr. Dasek, there is no. Uh, bat species in Hubei that can uh, that can be a host for SARS-CoV-2 or RTG13 or any of these viruses. That's 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 like in you know in the stones. That's like one of the numbers in the stones. Um, this virus can only grow in bats that do not live in Hubei. They live in uh, a thousand a thousand kilometers south. Um, so that's what that piece of evidence was about. So at this moment, they still have. They've still not identified what either the intermediate host or the reservoir host uh, could be, have they? You know, this is really remarkable, Julius, and and this is where their level of willingness to be creative is is beyond mine. Uh, in their three in their three hour conference, you know, when they finished their investigation in China, they gave me and others some new facts. Over the last year, they have looked at they've looked for the SARS coronavirus in sixty thousand different individual animals from Hubei, from farms in Hubei, from the wild in Southern China, from uh, farmed animals in Southern China, 60,000 animals. The number with SARS-CoV-2 they found was zero. Um, I mean, so what, what a statistician can do, you can go to a statistician and say, hey, look at I got. I, I tested sixty thousand. I found zero. What is the what is the incidence in the population? How low does it have to be for me to for that to happen? For guys' sakes, uh, and the answer is it's zero point zero 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 five percent prevalence in the population. Back to MERS. Back to SARS-CoV one. Once they found it in the market, hundred percent of the animals in the market had it. Once they found it in camels in the Mideast, 100% of the animals have it. We're zero for 60,000 and we're still hanging out there. And I'm, I'm kind of saying, what number do you have? What number do we get to where you say, look at it, you know, this, this is not working for us. And their answer is, well, we need more money to look at this for another few years, maybe a decade. Uh, and that's just disingenuous. So they're 
they're holding out for some mysterious animal that doesn't exist that shows evidence of having had uh, SARS-CoV-2. Is the, is the zoonotic origin just com- completely unlikely now? It's like it's regardless of the evidence that you've given, is, is it just ridiculous to even uh, endorse the zoonotic um, hypothesis anymore? Um, I, I mean, I think if I think if if this is like a term paper and you got to get it in to get your grade before the end of the semester, um, you've got to come down on the side that this came from the laboratory. What would convince me would be a, a, a virus with let's call it, let's call it a year of posterior diversity. I mean, this virus is like a is like a molecular clock. Every two weeks, it gets a new mutation. Twenty six mutations a year. So show me a SARS-CoV-2 that's 22 mutations backwards from CoV-2 in humans back to RETG13. So RETG13 is 1,100 mutations from SARS-CoV-2. So do the math on that. That's like 40, 50 years. So that can't be the direct answer. And and yet they're saying, sorry, Stephen, I was just interrupting you there again. But So they've been saying, just to give a bit of context for the listeners, they've been saying that RETG13 is uh, the ancestor, at least Dr. Shi said that it was the ancestor of uh, SARS-CoV-2. But that, as you were saying, would take uh, 1,100 mutations to get from ROTG13 to SARS-CoV-2, which would take, uh, I can't even do the math on how many decades that would take. So it's clearly been turbocharged, ROTG13, if that is the ancestor, and none of this has occurred naturally. Yeah. So, so let, let me unpack that a little because there are a couple of things there that I want to be sure we 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 get we get correct here. I I don't think that Dr. Shi has said that she thinks that RITG thirteen is the ancestor of SARS-CoV two, which means a direct lineage. I, I, what she has said is that they are cousins and they have a common ancestor back in time. Eleven hundred mutations between the two of them, five fifty apiece. You know, they're each going their separate way from that ancestor is about forty years. So uh, just to just to correct, uh, no one. Uh, I think well, there, and there is this thing going on. So there are some amateur scientists who've who've tried to say, okay, I got RITG thirteen, I got to get eleven steps, I'll get to SARS CoV two, and they and they run some some hypothetical lab experiments. They they they, they kind of do a disservice because um, you know you can you, you can do so many hypothetical things that it's easy to dispute that. I think if it's kind of the best way to say it. Um, so we don't know what the direct ancestor is. Uh, SARS, RATG13 may not even be a, a real virus. There's some evidence that it, it exists only on paper and, and, and we can have a separate um, but, but to So if I found a virus that was say a year and a half back, so let's say it has 40 mutations uh, from SARS-CoV-2 and let's say it's found you know, in an animal uh, in uh, in uh, Hubei that, that we don't know about that it can actually grow in. Because again, one of my analysis here is this thing grows best in humans or primates and worst in bats and not very good in, in, in other animals. Again, the, the, the virus perfects itself for bats and then it jumps to cats and then it works on cats. And the cat virus, the, the perfected cat virus can't go back to bats very well. It has to redo all the changes it makes. So the fact this is so well adapted to humans also means, and now it's been tested in the laboratory, that it is so poorly adapted for anything else. So it would. Ha- so there's been 400 animals that were tested for 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 best fit, so to speak. It's always primates. It's never bats. Other animals are intermediate. So maybe there's an animal that's not on that 400 list. So what I'm saying is, you got to give me an animal that's not on the list of 400. You got to give me a virus that has 30 or 40 nucleotides back from SARS. So 
SARS-CoV-2. Um, and it's got to be, you know, a legitimate infection. And there's got to be an evidence that it wasn't planted, I guess, <laughs> just to be just to be conspiratorial mm. uh, to, 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 to get me excited about this. The next piece of evidence you looked to was uh, a government requested review of samples collected from a mine shaft uh, may have caused the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you just expand on uh, on this a bit? This is a really interesting piece of evidence. Um, I'm not sure again whether I used it in my analysis for changing my numbers, but so so let, let's unpack this and, and and talk about what it means because it it actually segues to um, to something that happened last week. So let me start with what happened last week and then back into this question. Um, Chatham House, a group in in London, had uh, had a few of the folks from the WHO for a one-hour uh, webinar, and people were able to ask questions put in there, and people voted, and, and questions got voted in. So one of my questions got voted in to, to be asked. Uh, my question was that, uh, Dr. Dasak, in September of 2019, a database containing 16,000 coronavirus bats was taken offline uh, in uh, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It has not been made available. Dr. Xi has been asked about this. She has said that there was a computer hack. We had to take it down. But we're now 15 months later. Why can't it be put back up so we can look inside this? Because this is this is a repository of 16,000 sequences that nobody but the world has, no one in the world has seen. Uh, and his answer quite remarkably was, well, it's an Excel spreadsheet, which of course it isn't. It's a relational database. It's something much higher than that. And I've looked at it and, and there's nothing closer than RITG 13. So, so you don't need to see it. It was, was basically the Twitter version of his answer. Why is that important? Well, because in, because in September, we have documented evidence that it was taken offline. We, we know the date and the hour and the, you know, the day, September 19th, we know the hour it was taken down. Um, in July, the uh, the Chinese government put out a directive to find five uh, coronaviruses or five highly pathogenic viruses that could cause human disease and to set up a project to study them. And we're going to give you money to study those. Uh, this was put out to the entire country of, of China. And so there's a group of, of people that have additional evidence that they believe uh, not that SARS-CoV-2 was created in a laboratory, but they believe it, it may have been actually in the shelf in those 16,000. And during the process of looking, uh, they took it out, put it in cells, got it growing, and then it, the lab escape came from that. So it's it's quite an intriguing bit of evidence. Um, you know, the, the what's called, there's a thing in the law called the consciousness of guilt, which means, you know, if if the police come to your house and, and, and knock on the door and say, we want to take you in to question you about a crime and you run out the back door <laughs> and then you run away, that's that's kind of evidence that can be used in court to say, hey, this guy, this person's acting like they're guilty. So if you have a database that has something bad in it, you take it down, you, you know, and you make an excuse and then you don't you don't provide it. Again. Maybe it's not an excuse. I shouldn't say that. You say it's hacked, but then you don't make it available. There's a zillion ways to make this available that it can't be hacked. I mean, with, we got databases all over the world that have not been hacked. Uh, and so uh, that's 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 challenging. That's challenging, and that's what that whole section was about. Again, I, I admire your um, dispassionate objectivity, but that's just <laughs> that's un- unbelievably suspicious. So the database with all the records relating to RATG thirteen and any other coronavirus just disappeared. Did it from? It just went offline. Just sixteen thousand bat viruses. It might be interesting to the world. And, and from, from a medical point of view, I'm a doctor. Maybe there's something in there to help me design a vaccine. For God's sakes. Mm-hmm. So it's more than it's more than frustrating about the origin. This is a humanitarian issue, I think. Mm. 
We got a pandemic, 100,000 people are being infected. You got something that could help somebody else in the world in, in your laboratory, you make it available, period, mm. full stop. Mm. Unscientific and suspicious. So the next piece of evidence in your analysis, I believe, was that the Hunan, is, it, is Hunan the way it's pronounced? Hunan seafood market? Yeah. yeah the Hunan that's seafood it. market and farmed animals in Hubei province are not the source of COVID 2 and that's been uh, established now. It has, but it, but it, of course it keeps coming back in the. Um, it, it's back. It's back. <laughs> it's it's the uh, it, it's the theory that won't go away. Um, the uh, Dr. Xi and the head of the Chinese CDC have said that it didn't start in the market. It went into the market, but it, you know, it, 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 but it, it didn't come out of the market. It went into the market. Um, but yet it's back on the table now in the concept of, of frozen food. So so my analysis here is is, is pretty simple. Other people, including people, Dr. Holmes in, in, your, in your country, uh, Eddie Holmes, um, published a paper on how to describe the lineage of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the way they did it was they took three, three of the closest uh, bat viruses, they, they looked at the human sequence and they said, which patient is the closest? Um, and they called that lineage A. About four or 5,000 people have lineage A. Lineage B has two mutations from lineage A, and lineage B is the reference standard. Lineage B is the base of every case in the world. So I, I said every everybody had the first coronavirus. They, they, there's, there's lineage A, and then right next to them in the PLA hospital is the person with lineage B. And then that's the one that became the one that went throughout the world, not the lineage A one. But nonetheless, you can track them back and forth. So why is that important? Every sample from this market is a lineage B virus. Right. So, so, so if lineage A is the first patient and lineage and all viruses, uh, any, any, you know, lineage B virus comes from that lineage A, this thing can't start in the market. And even more conspicuous than that, wasn't it also that uh, a third of the first cases that were reported had no link whatsoever to the, uh, to the seafood market? Bingo. Yeah. Which is you'd, you'd think is evidence in itself that it, it can't have originated from there because wouldn't everyone, if it had originated in the uh, wet market, wouldn't every single person have a connection back to that market? Uh, my 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 answer is no. It's a great segue for me to tell you about what I call the COVID conduit. Go ahead, I'd love to hear it. Okay, and it's it's in the Bayesian analysis farther down. Uh, so um, there are nine subway lines in the town in the in the city of Wuhan. It's 11 million people. It's a huge, huge city. Okay. They have nine different subway lines. <clears throat> so what I did was I I identified all 40 hospitals uh, in Wuhan and I and I drew what I call what is called a catchment, which is basically a circle around the hospital that touched the line. If you assume that people go to the hospital near where they live, and if they're going to use the subway, go to the subway nearest where they live, then you can, you can look at all 40 hospitals and see, is there one line that looks different than the others? Uh, and what, what blew up when you look at it is, all patients from December 1st through January 10th went to the hospital that is closest to line two of the Wuhan subway station. The probability of that, my statistician says, is one in 68,000. Why is that important? What's, what's special about line two? It's kind of a weirdly special line. Uh, 
5% of the Wuhan population travels on that line every single day. 1 million people, if you assume they're going back and forth to work, that's 500,000 people. That's 5% of the whole population. What else is on that line that might be interesting? Well, it's the closest line to the seafood market. It's the closest line to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's the closest line to the PLA hospital. So all of the origins are on line two, but it gets even better. <laughs> the station next to the seafood market, the next station west from the seafood market is the, the high-speed rail station. You go underground from the seafood, you go from the seafood market downstairs, you go there, and in three hours, you can be anywhere in China. But it gets better. You now go to the end, the western end of line two. And what do you find? You find the Hubei International Airport. So you can go from the seafood market or you can go from the one institute, you can go downstairs and you can never go outside again. And you can go to London, you can go to Paris, you can go to the Middle East, you can, you can go, I believe you can go to Australia uh, without ever going outside again. So the, what I call the conduit, the, the COVID conduit is line two. Because, and I actually think I, I'm not, I, you know, I think an epidemiologist could write a PhD around the amplification. What contribution did this particular line have on amplifying this? Because if you have the high speed rail station and the airport uh, and all of this happening, you know, on the line where the Wuhan Institute is, that's an amplifier even beyond what the virus can do in, in direct human to human contact. So this is just the perfect storm. For spreading uh, it is, SARS-CoV-2. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, in in the sense that um, that weather people talk about deadly storms with the word perfect. Uh, yes. Mm. Well, wow. <laughs> yeah. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. This must have been sort of as as morbid as it must have been. It must also have just been uh, quite exciting uh, discovering all this evidence piece by piece. Was that the case? You know, there was uh, there was satisfaction in in the investigation and satisfaction in you know cracking some of this. Uh, there, there, there's no satisfaction in um, in the whole process. Mm. Uh, I, I can tell you, I would give anything to not have had to do this for the last year. Mm. And I'm, I have to say, it was quite moving your opening introduction to your paper, actually, where you talk about. Uh, who the dedication was to, and it's to the yeah. more than 100 million people who have contracted this. Uh, virus and to the more than 2 million people who have died from it. So yeah. uh, we're nearing the end of the list of applied evidence here. Uh, you looked at the fact that she and Dashak used Wuhan residents as negative control for zoonotic coronavirus exposure. What does this suggest? Well, uh, look, at before, <laughs> before this, um, before this happened, before they, they, they got involved with having to talk about this, um, they were doing they were they were doing this kind of experiment. So they were doing um, what are called sero. They were doing sero conversion. Now, now you, your your readers, your listeners know what that means. So uh, they were down in uh, in the middle of China, out in, the, out in the rural, very rural area, but near one of their bat caves. Uh, and they wanted to say, well, what what is the sort of a random incidence of sero conversion in these people who you know every day every night the, the bats are coming in and out of the caves above their home. Um, and so they needed a control for that. So what they did was they, they used, I think, about 240, 250 people from Wuhan. Um, and, and they, they you know, they come out and they say in their paper that uh, we, we did this because the, the probability of this uh, happening in Wuhan is, is very small because it's a very urban city. I mean, if you, if you look at what, what Wuhan is, I mean, I, I, you know, it is it is the most modern city. It's the kind of thing you'd see in a futuristic movie. 
you know, with with uh, the elevated trains and huge skyscrapers and extremely modern. I mean, it's, I'm sure it has a, a core because it's been it's been historically, I think, a city for a thousand years. It's got a, a very rich history. But on the other hand, it's now one of the most modern cities in the world. And to have a have a natural virus pop up there is pretty rare. So so again, three or four years ago, Dr. Kasek and she were admitting that, you know, uh, Wuhan is the least likely place this should occur from. And yet um, now it's perfectly natural and you know, they have their stories. It's amazing that just throughout the whole process, they're just putting the more and more nails in their own coffin. I mean, you're you're using their own evidence against them and it's just constantly damning of um, what they've done in this whole process. It's exact. I mean, we have a guy named Mark Twain that we used to talk about, and he used to always say that I, I have to always tell the truth because it's too hard to lie. Keep all your lies straight. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't do it quite right, but he, it's, yeah, it's worth looking up. As, as best as you can, Stephen, could you summarize all this evidence and what it suggests? I mean, I know it's, it's a lot to unpack, but maybe if you could just crystallize what you think are the essential points to be made for the listeners, because as, as I said, for myself and I'm sure every one of my listeners, we're not scientists. And I, I think it's really important to convey uh, this message as clearly and comprehensively as possible. If you could just unpack uh, what you think are the most important points. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I want to tell you the most important points about what I've done here. I also want to give you a guide to listen for yourself uh, uh, when, when someone does, to, to be your own scientist, as it were. So, so what, I, what I want you to do when you hear someone talking is ask yourself, are they giving me evidence or are they giving me conclusions? If they're giving me conclusions, try to ask them in some way or try to look what was the evidence they had for that. So what you're going to hear over the next few weeks is a lot of conclusions that this came from nature. What you want to listen for is someone saying, the reason we're saying this conclusion is we found it in these animals from this cave in nature. I don't think you're going to hear that. And so you've got to be careful. So then when they give conclusions about this natural origin, uh, you've got to be suspect. Natural origins have uh, characteristics. You can, you can find the animal in nature. You can see that the virus was adapted to the natural animal before it hit humans. You can find evidence in humans where the, where the, the, practice, the practice virus, the virus with, with training wheels, was jumping into humans, causing an infection, jumping back, seroconversion. So there are three or four key features of zoonosis that you should look for. None of them are present here. Okay, let's flip it over. If this was in the laboratory, what sort of evidence would there be that this was laboratory created? One would be that you did all that practice jumping in a test tube uh, or with humanized mice. So when it hit humans, it was fully adapted. That's never been seen in a natural infection before. That's exactly what you would get if, it, if, it been, if they'd been working it out in the laboratory. You see something that's never occurred in this particular virus before, like the furin site, you, you, you learn that scientists around the world know universally that this increases infectivity. You see it there, you see its coding, you see that that's completely unnatural, unusable. You see a laboratory reason for putting that there. You get really suspicious. Uh, and then you look at, you look at this, this gene called ORF, ORF8, and this is, this is kind of a secondary argument, but this is the gene that controls your immune response. If you tune this gene properly, you not only cause a massive infection, but to pack down the immune system and not allow it to, not allow it to come about. Uh, this ORF8 is also 
uh, maximized. I don't have the ability to quantify that, but I do have the ability to show that Dr. Shi and Dr. Dasek were studying the properties of ORF-8 to make it more or less lethal uh, two or three years ago in a publication. So um, that's kind of, I, I'd like you to be do, being your own scientist here and making people give you evidence before they give you conclusions. Essentially to be skeptical of everything uh, rather than- Well, that's to be a scientist. You're, skept, mm. you're always skeptical of everything. That's you get up and you're skeptical in the morning. I found it very frustrating. I must admit when I was talking to Mark Pellegrini that anytime I presented one of your arguments from your paper, we, we, as you said, the piece, just piece of evidence, you know, he said, you know, you can selectively pick evidence from a whole cabinet of cabinet of evidence, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is true or that is true. And I just felt like saying to him, it's like, it seems like the whole cabinet is filled with evidence pointing to uh, a lab leak hypothesis and that there's the, the cabinet that uh, shows zoonotic origin evidence doesn't exist. So it's, mm, it's, it's quite a frustrating Quite a frustrating process talking to people who, as you say, give conclusions rather than evidence. Um, I, just, I mean, I, I did listen to the, the, his his presentation, and I guess I guess uh, maybe I'm old school. So if I've been in that position, I, I would have said simply, "Look, uh, I haven't read Quay's paper, so I really can't comment on it." Just mm. you know, just but not what he said. I'm not sure he's read it. So that, that, that's that's what you say. Mm, but that's not what he yeah. said. Um, there's also I've I've heard uh, from. Uh, Brett Weinstein, a, uh, I believe is a microbiologist uh, in uh, America, has made the point on the fact that SARS-CoV-2 shows little evidence of transmissibility uh, when exposed to sun rays, that this suggests that it's uh, something that uh, developed or uh, uh, morphed indoors because it didn't develop an uh, uh, immunity to sunlight. Is there any, is there any truth to that as, a, as an idea? So I'm going to use the principle I just said that I wish I'd seen earlier and say, that I haven't seen that research. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's a fascinating idea. I mean, I get it right away, of course. It's basically saying if you don't, uh, if you don't let this thing um, be exposed to UV light, it's going to be more, have a higher mutation, an artificially mm. higher mutation rate. Uh, I may look into that and, and, and try to do, you know, sort of viruses from the world, viruses from the laboratory. I, I mean, there's a pretty... If it's been done, if the research's been done, I think I could. I think I could tease that out. Uh, did he have a paper, or did he? Was he just speculating? No, I think he was just speculating. He's. Um, yeah. Uh, I was actually on. There was a series of podcasts that I was listening to. Yeah, I, I must admit that I think it was just speculation, but it, it sounded like quite convincing speculation to me. Hence why I, I thought. I'd, oh, that's a very uh, cool idea. I, I, I like it. I, I'm going to run it down. Do you think that this whole the whole COVID nineteen uh, pandemic really does point to an issue with gain of function experiments in general? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. If, if that point hasn't gotten mm. across, let's let's focus on that. Nobody, I don't want no one to leave. Mm. Um, again, I'm going to talk uh, in sort of very deliberate, compartmentalized way. I am a scientist, an advisor. I have no more right to to vote on things than anyone else in a democracy. So, what I want to see happen is I want to see a public debate between scientists that, that think gain of function has a benefit and scientists that think it don't. I'm in that camp. Mm. I think we should have a public debate. I think the public should be invited. I think she, we should talk, uh, not like the academy with Latin and fancy words. We should talk in a way that that you know a guy at a bar can understand and 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 be clear. And I don't mean to be pejorative there, pejorative there, but but just talk in really simple terms and say this is why we think it's good. I'll say why we think it's bad, and then the public should vote because it's their blood and treasure that we're all playing with here. 
Mm. And I think it's completely unfair for, you know, to have sort of a judge and jury. I mean, look, at if, if, if my salary is based on gain-of-function research and my passion is based on gain-of-function research, I am not going to be able to separate that and necessarily it's going to take a huge amount of discipline to, to come up and say, you know, I think maybe we should stop doing this. Well, that's another point I put to um, Mark was, you know, do you think that virologists have an inherent bias towards <laughs> not not supporting the um, the lab leak hypothesis because it would jeopardize gain of function experiments. And he said, no, I don't think that. And I was like, well, if your salary is dependent on uh, being able to do them, uh, I think it would. So I wasn't I wasn't very convinced by that. Since you published your paper, have more expert experts started to agree with you? What's what's been the reaction within the scientific community? So, um, well, it's been viewed one hundred and ten thousand times, and it's been downloaded about eighty five thousand times. I have to say, I, I mean, I think the other work I've done in my life has been important, 360 publications, et cetera, but this has been the most uh, widely read thing I've ever written. So I, so that to me is, is satisfying at one level. Um, yes, there's, a, there's, a, there's more and more community. I think, I think what this did for me was to put me in a network of, uh, of lots of other virologists who behind the scenes, maybe privately are, are looking at that. Uh, my email box is now filled with new friends over the last two or three months, and we're working together to look at other aspects of this uh, to continue to sort of, uh, you know, uh, unpeel, the, unpeel the onion, so to speak. So, um, well, so for example, I mean, again, I, I, I've had conclusory comments about it uh, without having any evidence. So somebody said, well, somebody said the math is meaningless. And I said, well, you know, please, which, which math was the meaningless one? And, and maybe I made a mistake there and let's correct it. Uh, radio silence. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I, I have found I have found no one that's disputed any of the principles of it. I, I mean, there's example. I'm, just again to be clear. So we've got Dr. Shi and Dr. Dasik in one of their published papers that I used doing. Guess what? A Bayesian analysis. So so I've had people say, well, you can't you can't do a Bayesian analysis wrong. It was okay for Dr. Dasik and she three years ago. Why is it okay for me to do it? Mm. Um, you know, and then and then people have not noticed that I've degraded the, the statistics and said, "Well, you, you've blown things up with your statistical analyses." And I said, "No, I've done the opposite. I've given it every chance it could." Well, um, once again, Dasik and she helping you rather than hindering you. Uh-huh. Were there were there many experts? Okay, look at I'm look at I like to win arguments, <laughs> and so when I can, I'm going yeah. to go to their papers and find evidence. Hundred percent, because that makes it really hard for them to argue with. Were there many experts who, uh, prior to you publishing the paper, shared the same suspicions? Has there been a, a community of scientists who have kept their heads down and just been chipping away at this over the last year? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Uh, there, there have been uh, people who have uh, worked with the federal government, like U.S. federal government, like I have, uh, that are kind of anonymous. There are people. Uh, there's the, the group of us who published the open letter here uh, earlier in March, have been getting together, uh, you know, regularly on Zoom call where we talk nothing but science and, you know, evidence and, and detailed, detailed work around it. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there, there is a, there's a large community of, uh, of folks that are, uh, are equally concerned that, that uh, a, a lab investigation needs to be done. I mean, well, I was asked on, I was asked, I think on Fox TV here a couple of weeks ago, you know, if, if, if you could magically get, you know, one thing from the Chinese, what would it be? And I'd say, well, it's probably two things, but it's it's the 16,000 virus database and it's the medical records of the first 100 patients because that's how you that's how you track down an, ep, you know, an, ep, an epidemic. And um, I bet you're going to find one that worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and then that's going to take you in a, the direction I think you'll go. Do, but, do you think it would uh, be a, do you think it would be a good idea to 
sort of grant clemency to all scientists uh, implicated in this just so that we can, if, if that would perhaps encourage uh, whistleblowers or cooperation from them because, I mean, more than, uh, you know, making sure justice uh, comes to those who are responsible for this, I think it's much more important uh, that we actually get to the bottom of its origins so that we can uh, prevent more deaths and sort of prepare for a future pandemic. Yeah, no, I have uh, I have absolutely no uh, no ill will toward anyone in China whatsoever, uh, Julius. Uh, I mean, I think um, I think it's important to realize that, as far as I can tell from you know from third party news sources and that sort of thing, I mean, the Chinese have taken a, a young journalist taking pictures of the woman in virology, and I believe she's in jail for ten months. Um, there have been doctors who have talked about this. The, the doctor who is the head of the emergency room in one of the hospitals. Uh, is not to be seen and, and appears to have disappeared. We don't know what happened to her. You know, there could be, so so. Um, you know, we might be <laughs> we might be playing you know an amateur game because I I think maybe there's 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 obviously a, you know a, a different set of uh, rules if I could call it that. So um, I, I think it's I think it's a little naive by the West to think that we could we could have whistleblowers. Or that we'll get to the bottom of it at all. To what we were saying about it being, you know, just a perfect storm of everything going wrong, I guess the sort of characteristics of the Chinese Communist Party just add to how difficult this this process is to deal with. It is, but, but, but Julius, again, we need to realize something here. So we have a court system in the West um, in which uh, uh, crimes are prosecuted and people are found guilty or innocent of crimes. Beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard in America. Uh, the law schools say that's 95 to 98%, although they don't quantify it in the courtroom. And most criminal decisions are made on circumstantial evidence. Uh, that was one of the that was one of the big virology objections I had was, well, this is all circumstantial evidence. Well, okay, f- fingerprints at the scene of the crime is circumstantial evidence. <clears throat> Having owning the gun that the bullet was shot with is circumstantial evidence. So let's not let's not pretend that circumstantial evidence isn't used every single day to determine the most heinous crime we have, which is which is murder, one human murdering another. So we're very very familiar with working with nothing but circumstantial evidence and coming to a conclusion. So if my document is nothing but circumstantial evidence and I come to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt. I, you know, I think we need to say maybe we do know the answer here and not keep this open. Mm. No, I completely agree. It seemed to me at least last year that people had an aversion to this idea simply because Donald Trump was perpetuating it, as I said before. Uh, do you think that to dismiss the idea uh, because of that would be to politicise uh, what should be an, object- an objective and impartial issue? I mean, I've, I've heard many, um, I mean, certainly uh, the Chinese Communist Party they say that the lab leak hypothesis is politicizing the issue, whereas quite the opposite. I feel that to dismiss the idea is to politicize the issue. Would you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, now we're getting into politics, and I have no uh, no expertise there. I'm, uh, I'm you know just average person there. We we all watched with kind of amazement, somewhat sometimes amusement, sometimes amazement, um, that literally for three years, if Donald Trump said A, then everyone else said B. Mm. <laughs> the sun was yellow, no, it was pink. And so, yes, uh, he did weigh into the origin of the virus. And that quickly was, was the, the pattern was just repeated then. He he said this, so we're going to say that. Um, it, I, I think I think it was, you know, it was the end of three years of that process. So people were kind of getting, okay, I think, I mean, may, maybe objective people were saying, well, 
news media, you're just you're just disagreeing to be disagreeable or whatever. Um, it's it was it was a pretty um, unhappy for me. It was an unhappy occurrence because you know I, I grew up in America. I like I like it. I like it. I I used to like journalism. I used to like I used to trust journalism. So it's kind of sad to watch. But you're absolutely right that uh, to the extent that he politicized it as being a lab origin or coming from there. Um, that became one of the various steps that were put forward as the reason uh, to believe that it wasn't. Absolutely. Mm. I'm not sure if this is the right word for it, but it's almost like there's an issue with uh, sort of pop academia or pop science. Uh, and what I mean by that is academia and science that toes the line uh, so as to not lose funding, not to lose face, uh, not to lose reputations built on prevailing narratives. And that's, I feel that that's been an issue. Uh, with finding the origins of uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, would you agree with this? Yeah, I would. I would. And 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 th- this is where my naiveness probably <laughs> comes to the forefront. Here is, um, <clears throat> I've been in science since I was seventeen. Uh, I got to college at seventeen, and I had a laboratory three weeks into it, uh, and I was in heaven. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, I knew that that was my calling my whole life. So I probably was in my fifties until I realized how. Uh, humanized and how so therefore maybe political science is uh, and watching you know some of my friends become Nobel Prize winners and watching the machinations they had to go through to to get there I mean their science was absolutely great and and I, I just said well why don't you stand on your science but you know you have to you have to do political things so so science is absolutely a politicized process um, I, I mean I, I I made a joke in in uh, up in the introduction to this was you know, one of the, so the Lancet paper that Dr. Dasek arranged uh, to say that it was a conspiracy for thinking it came from a laboratory, uh, he actually introduced one of these online petitions that said, if you want to support this letter, you can sign it. And I think the last time I looked, it had been signed like 22, 23, 24,000 people. Um, and to me, to me, it almost is like fingernails on the chalkboard when I see that being applied to science. Uh, because science is, you don't do that. Uh, the best example I have is Stephen Hawking's wrote a, wrote a book uh, in which he talked about Albert Einstein. So Albert Einstein is still in Germany. It's it's in the 30s. Nazism is rising. And there was a paper published uh, against Einstein's writings, which was titled A uh, Hundred Physicists Against the Findings of Albert Einstein. And a, a journalist came up and said, well, what do you think of this, you know, Dr. Einstein? What do you think of all this thing? He says, he looked at him and he smiled. And he said, you know, if I was wrong, it would have only taken one of them. It's like science isn't a popularity contest. It is definitely not a popularity contest. So, so I, it, it uh, but, but it has been politicized and, and that's, that's very unfortunate. Again, we, we want to get to the origin and if it's gain of function, we need to figure out how to do gain of function or not do it in a safe manner and then, and then go on and, you know, live another day. And I know you've already uh, kind of said this, but just for the record uh, and to emphasize it, I also feel I have to ask, uh, do you think that this, if it was a lab leak um, origin, do you think that it was released intentionally or by mistake? I believe it was released by mistake, but I have no evidence for that other than um, uh, some of the the behaviors of the people involved are too much in line with the behavior you'd, you'd see for someone who is was facing, you know, a big crisis. They didn't know how big it was going to be, obviously, at that point in time. But, um, you know, inside of China, their response was was quite. Uh, and so they're either, you know, either the best actors in the world, or uh, or they were, or it truly was an accident. Mm. It's uh, it's almost as if the incompetence all over the shop from uh, <laughs> she and Dashak and others 
supports the idea that it was a mistake rather than a intentional release. Do you feel that the phrase conspiracy theorist has been weaponized somewhat, especially in relation to this? Well, absolutely, of course. It, it's it's dismissive. Um, again, it's not a scientific term. It's a conclusionary term. Uh, what you would say is because because Steve Quay said X, Y, Z, he is contributing to a conspiracy theory. When they just say it's a conspiracy theory, you, you don't have the predicate. And in science, you need always need the predicate. What's the evidence? And then I'll call it a conspiracy theory. So, so um, what, I mean, there are examples here. What, what's, what, I mean, there's some example, oh, I don't know that it came from outer space or something like that. So, so uh, you know, there's no evidence for that. And therefore that's an evidence-free conclusion, which probably qualifies as part of the definition of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, you could even point to the, the recent frozen food theory as uh, almost the equivalent of you know, a conspiracy theory for that. I, I thought from the beginning that uh, it would it would seem like a conspiracy theory not to at least consider the lab leak hypothesis. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I mean, and, and the problem with the frozen foods is it is it really complicates. It's what you have is you have a you have a jump from an animal to a human working in a food uh, industry to the food supply chain, then back to a human. Um, and so the it's beauty ridiculous. of it, well, yeah, but the beauty is the virus. You know, you know, mutations and genes are going to be the same. So, uh, show me, show me the predicate virus with forty mutations from SARS-CoV-2 on a piece of meat. Uh, that's one evidence. And the other evidence is, of course, somebody had to be sick in that food supply in that food company, right? To get it into the frozen mm. food, you got to have a human touching it who's already sick. So, so go to the factory and show me a, a sick human. I don't think you can. You're currently in Taiwan. Uh, who has arguably had the best reaction to the COVID pandemic, I think. The fact that having had something like seven or eight deaths, uh, despite having a population of 23 million people and despite being uh, so close to China. How has Taiwan combated the pandemic and why have they been so successful? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they've had eight, we've had eight deaths here, 23 million people. Um, and uh, additional, additional important fact is before this pandemic, 8% of our population was in mainland China, either on vacation or doing business. So, 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 so well, I think, yeah. I think it's you know, 600,000 people or something like that. Um, very large number of people were in mainland China. So um, I don't know the full story, uh, but I actually have a very interesting uh, uh, story. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, Taiwan got badly, uh, Taiwan was badly uh, affected by SARS-CoV-1. And they basically said, never again. Uh, and they really meant it. And they, they put in place all kinds of, of very strong surveillance mechanisms and, and, and other means. Um, I, I had the opportunity to visit with a, a, a doctor who was responsible for looking for, or just, just sort of listening to social media in China and you know Wuhan happened to be his, his territory, um, his or her territory. And so, um, he was, he was about to do something on December 30th, uh, he was celebrating at the end of 2019. He saw something online. Uh, he was not in Taiwan. He decided to make a phone call back to Taiwan to his colleagues back there and say, hey, this is what I got. Uh, and uh, according to this doctor, the next day, uh, Chinese uh, Taiwan CDC uh, uh, officials were boarding every airplane from Wuhan, taking temperatures, uh, giving them a phone app to track where they went. Uh, and this phone app also was overlaid with everyone else. 
So Taiwan actually had the ability to watch someone who had COVID, look in retrospect, let's say the last two or three days, and follow that person who ends up with COVID and see everybody who's within 10 feet of that person and then contact those people and say, you're within 10 feet of a person with COVID, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, and they did that heavily in January and that's, and that's what broke the back of the virus here. We had a similar setup here in, uh, in Melbourne, um, but I think it probably would have just, we would have set it up uh, too late in comparison to Taiwan. We didn't have SARS-CoV-1 as the um, lesson that I think SARS-CoV-2 will be for us in the future. But yeah, that's, that's fascinating. What a hero that guy was uh, sending the message yeah. back, back to uh, yeah, his colleagues in Taiwan. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been one of the more astonishing conversations I think I've ever had. I'd really encourage the listeners, um, if they are at all sceptical or just in general, uh, to actually read Stephen's paper. Um, I'll include a link to it in the description. Um, it really is a gripping, scholarly and shocking read. Thank you, Stephen, and all the best. Thank you. I, I enjoyed, the, enjoyed our time today.